Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, and welcome to the Coffee Clatch. This is Marianne Russo. We are back. Uh, we took a summer break, and we uh, presented the Best Of series, and I have to thank you because we had thousands and thousands of listens to our top ten for last year, and uh, we appreciate the support. And uh, this is our new season premiere, and we have an incredible lineup of not only outstanding guests coming your way, but we have some outstanding new hosts that are joining us. So Mae Wilkinson and Chuck Wally will be back, and they have a special show called Special Events, and they will be discussing current events and uh, legislative news in the special needs community. We have Ariva Martin, who will be hosting the Ariva Martin Show. She is the founder and president of Special Needs Network. She is an attorney. And um, you know her as an on-air television personality on CNN, Court TV, Anderson Cooper, and she's going to be hosting shows here also. Stephanie Weiss is someone who you may not know, but you are definitely going to remember. She's going to be hosting Ask Stephanie, and she's known here in New York City as the Dr. Connoisseur. She matches families with pediatric psychologists and psychiatrists based on not only diagnosis, but on you know, family style, the doctor style personality, and getting the best fit for the family. She's a fabulous resource, and she'll be bringing some of these amazing doctors on. And let's not forget, our new show that we, we presented last year is Off the Charts, Bright Not Broken, hosted by Diane Kennedy and Rebecca Banks. Um, is this, this show is just crazy. People are loving it, unbelievable guests. They discuss ADHD, autism, and twice-exceptional kids. So for everything, just go to our website. Everything is there. But for tonight, we have Dr. Allison Baker of Columbia Psychiatry. And um, you know, Dr. Baker is... Um, known in New York City uh, for treating adolescents, and she is uh, the director at the Adolescent Program at Columbia's East Side Practice, and she is just a wealth of information for us. And we're going to be discussing transitioning our teens um, into college because, you know, our kids that have anxiety, OCD, depression, it's a very scary thing. And we're also going to discuss, um, you know, some of these tragedies that have been happening with shootings and how we could possibly... Um, prevent them. So it's my honor to present Dr. Allison Baker. How are you? I'm well, thank you, Marianne. Thanks for having me tonight. Oh, I'm thrilled you're here. Um, you know, you work with um, teenagers, so you know you know what a lot of the parents are going through. You know, it goes, it's very difficult getting them just up to the high school years, and then you know it's that time where you feel that they have a little independence, and it's really scary for parents. Absolutely, it's arguably the most challenging time when. They are still in the home and yet developing their own autonomy and independence, and then they're off to college before you know it, and they are living independently, and that's a really, really challenging transition both for the youngster and most especially parents. Yeah, and, you know, whether they're they're close by or they're away, they're still, um, you know, they're in a whole new environment. Um, you know, what I want to talk about before we really get into the um, the core of the interview is, um, you know, I, I try to remind parents about age of majority. And mm-hmm. age of majority is, you know, most times 18. And, um, you know, a lot of parents fall into that loophole where they, you know, send their child to college, the child has some type of an emotional issue, may have to be hospitalized, and they have lost parental control. So can you just tell us a little bit about that and things that parents can do um, to make sure that they'd still be involved in the care should that happen? Sure, absolutely. I, it Maybe it's helpful to start by saying, yes, 
while your adolescent may now be 18 and be the age of majority. So what that actually means logistically is they may be able to sign for their own treatment. They may be able to, um, they will be able to sign for their own treatment and consent for things like medications, hospitalization, things of that nature. Any good child psychiatrist, uh, psychologist, mental health care worker appreciates that while chronologically they are 18, certainly they are still part of a context and that family does need to be a part of the process in terms of getting collateral history, getting a developmental history, pertinent medical history, things of that nature. So in other words, the family will definitely be involved and should be involved. And um, while they may not be signed into legal papers, for example, in a given scenario, they will be a crucial part of the process. So they're still involved. It's just it's no longer signing those permission slips in the way that you once mm-hmm. did. Right. You know, I, with with all my children, um, with or without issues, I, I always have them um, sign a health care proxy, um, you know, when they leave. Um, it's just a little peace of mind for me. Absolutely, absolutely. And there's information on the New York State Department of Health website in terms of actual um, care proxies, both for mental health care and also just general um, general proxies. Um, so that's a good resource for people if they want to check that out. It's www.health.ny.gov. Terrific. So, you know, let's get into it. You know, what are some of the biggest obstacles that teens with anxiety, depression, OCD, mood disorders, um, you know, face when they're transitioning into college. Um, you know, what should parents um, consider um, in when they're choosing a college and sending their child off? Absolutely. Well, I think you've asked two very important questions, and maybe I'll start with the latter and then go back to the former because they kind of uh, go in suit. Uh, they follow one another appropriately. So when, you're, when your child's applying to college, I think what a parent and a youngster can do together is think about the fit between a college and your child's personality. So while academics are certainly important, there are other aspects of college, as you had mentioned earlier, size, location, diversity, extracurricular activities, and all of these factors can impact how well your child thrives in all areas of college life. I think in regards to with regards to young people who have specific mental health issues understanding what mental health services policies and programs exist at your child's prospective colleges especially as if he or she as i mentioned have an existing emotional disorder these are uh, important questions to ask in terms of what are the services that are provided by the counseling center are there associated fees uh, logistical things like are there a maximum number of sessions allowed per year are there specialists that are on site, for example, eating disorders and things of that nature. Is there, in fact, a psychiatrist on staff? Um, because what that might mean insofar as prescribing medications and things of that nature. And, and does the counseling center provide off-campus referrals? There are other questions to ask in terms of um, peace of mind for parents. Under what circumstances will the college notify you regarding your child's mental health? And what happens if you call the college with a concern about your child? Uh, Another aspect of college life, a big aspect, is resident life. So does the college train their faculty, staff, and their RAs, their resident advisors, to identify and refer students in emotional distress? And what kinds of educational programming, like workshops and talks, are provided to students around mental health and wellness? Um, And you would also ask a very good question about accommodations. Are they available through the disability services for students with emotional disorders? 
And then finally, one longer-term question maybe to ask is, what is the policy around taking leaves of absence if indeed you get to that point? But hopefully you won't after having asked all these good questions in terms of considering the goodness of fit of their college. Right. And, you know, it's, parents really need to take advantage of the resources because, you know, the disabilities office, I mean, that's what they're there for. Uh, they're very helpful as far as, you know, um, room assignments, roommate assignments. Um, you know, I mean, there are some people that, you know, some people that these kids that it would be very unnerving um, to have to be in a room with a stranger um, and not be able to have their rituals or not be able to um, have their tics or whatever it may be. Um, so, you know, parents really need to utilize that. Um, and also I know that um, some schools um, you need to actually have the student sign a consent. Is that right for them to speak to you? Yes, absolutely, and that would be another thing that a, a proactive parent could do in anticipation of their child going to college. Arrive early, you can check out the Counseling Psychological Services Center, you can meet with a representative of their staff and even t- take the liberty of filling out those releases. So, for example, have your child's current mental health provider, be that their child's psychiatrist or their psychologist, sign something like this so that when your child get set up at college, the on-site staff have easier access to prior providers as well as parents. So those are things that you could do ahead of the game. And in terms of your uh, mentioning about the disability services, there are so many services that you, uh, you had mentioned. And also, young people are also available to receive education coaching, even academic accommodations and other services in addition to some of the dorm considerations that you had mentioned. And so that's mm-hmm. something that you should register uh, for to receive these reasonable accommodations. Right, because a lot of parents just assume that once they're out of high school, they lose their accommodations, and that's just not true. Not so, um, not so. You know, you mentioned, yeah, I mean, you mentioned um, about setting up a meeting with the mental health uh, representative at the college, and I know a lot of parents get nervous. They feel like they're setting up a, a red flag, like they're throwing their kid under the bus, um, and I know you don't agree with that, so can you just reassure parents about that? Certainly. I think that's one of the most important things that I uh, do with youngsters and families as they're transitioning to college. I understand parents' concern, and I can also speak from the other side, which is to say that staff members at student mental health services are more than grateful to get a heads up when things are not in crisis and that these Mm -hmm. issues are so prevalent and so commonplace on the college campus that everybody is interested in uh, preventative and preventative medicine, essentially. So um, to be proactive and set up a meeting of that nature means that you are having your child meet with staff when things are not in crisis and when things are actually going well so that they can get even a great baseline. And then it exactly. would be great news if they don't need services throughout the year. And then if they do, the staff member at the Mental Health Service or Psychological Center has a snapshot of of what they looked like back in August when all was rosy and they're rolling onto campus for the first time and then when things are kind of, you know, um, hitting the fan come come finals or come those uh, winter, uh, you know, midterms. So I think that it is something advisable. It's something that in my practice I do encourage families and adolescents to consider doing, and most have done so, and most are happy they've done so, because it does remove a big burden both from the parent's shoulders and the teen and the 18-year-old who has definitely expressed anxiety about, you know, what will happen if. So this is just, you know, another step in the direction of feeling like you've got your bases covered. 
Right, and a lot of these kids are, are heading off on medications. And, you know, let's face it, you know, a lot of a lot of us are helicopter moms, and, you know, we've had to be. And, um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, it's very risky if these kids start not taking their medication. So it's, it's good for the kids to know that they have somebody that's aware of their situation, that has seen them, like you said, at baseline when they're stable and can tell if they're agitated or dysregulated. It's, it's, it's really it's, it's so important to do. Um, yes. You know, but now as far as monitoring, I know that this is something that um, is tough. Because, you know, they are fairly independent. So, you know, now let's talk about, you know, what happens if they begin to see signs of severe depression and suicidal behavior, insomnia, mood swings, they're not eating, or maybe they're drinking too much. Because they say the first few weeks um, of college is really when the drinking patterns um, are formed for most college students. So um, how can parents be aware of if any of these things are happening? Absolutely. Well, this is probably one of the biggest challenges for parents in terms of taking that leap and letting go literally and figuratively. Noticing changes in your child's behavior is already a healthy first step to finding them the help that they need. So if you are picking up, you know, on that telephone check-in on Sunday nights that they sound really, really sleepy or stressed out, you can inquire in an open and non-judgmental way you know, how are you sleeping? Are you, are you, how are the meds going for you? How, you know, is, how are things going? And certainly if eating's not happening and there are, are poor sleep symptoms, these would be cause for concern as well as other symptoms like loss of interest and loss of pleasure and activities. And the primary concern of depression, of course, is suicide. And while it may feel uncomfortable, it is really important to ask about any thoughts of suicide or self-harm. And in responding to the answer, remember to listen without judgment and share your concern for them and never dismiss or minimize any suicidal thoughts. Having this very conversation is a huge step towards getting your child the help they need. You can suggest that it sounds like based on our conversation, you, you're having a hard time. Have you thought about going in to see the therapist or have you thought about making an appointment with student mental health? And if they blow you off, no, I'm too busy, or I have finals next week, you can, again, encourage them and, and maybe be a little more insistent that they go ahead and do that because you are concerned based on what they reported to you. And having that back and forth with your youngster, uh, believe it or not, will be a, a huge step in terms of them, you know, taking it under con, under consideration and then making that next step. Certainly if they refuse outright or there's anything that's above and beyond their, you know, a normal routine call or check-in and they're acting a little more erratically or concerning, you are on super solid ground to call the resident advisor or even make a trip to the college, call the student mental health. They can always receive information from a parent. While they may not be able to release information to you, they can always receive information from you. So those would be some, some steps that I would I would recommend a parent take if they're concerned about their child. And how do you um, recommend that parents deal with um, that fine line of the homesickness? Because all kids at some point get homesick. Um, Absolutely. Especially yeah. their first year out. Um, you know, and it, there's that fine line of, you know, encouraging them to get past it and work through it and, and, and use the calming techniques that they have been given, hopefully, um, you know, as they were growing up. So there's that fine line between encouraging them to stay and, you know, knowing and being able to know when they've really reached their limit. So how should parents deal with that? 
Absolutely. I think that's a very important question. I think trust your good judgment as a parent. If you are a concerned parent who's already considering all these issues and these factors and listening to this this radio show and and thinking about these kinds of details and nuances about their youngsters' well-being, you're on you know, you're on the you're in the right direction in terms of making sure that they are going to, you know, do okay with this big transition. In terms of specific suggestions about how to navigate that tricky balance between wanting to be there for them and also understanding that they may have to struggle a little bit and still ultimately this won't be um, a crisis situation. I think using data points over time, so for example, if you have multiple phone conversations or texts or Skype visits over the course of a couple weeks, you can even chart for yourself. Gosh, you know, my child sounded really down for several phone calls in a row, and her roommate even sent a text saying that she she feels that she's worried about her. She's so stressed out from her, you know, biology lab. Or you can say, you know what, she was on that one conversation. It was late at night. Why don't I see how she's doing the next day with the light of day? And just Mm -hmm. try and keep a few data points change the time of day when you're having a conversation, um, change the content of the conversation, and, and just kind of keep track, keep a log for yourself. And that will help inform you. And even you can use that to present it back to your youngster and say, I, I have to say I've noticed that over the last four times we've spoken, you've just sounded so down. That may be very helpful for your youngster to see that because they haven't been able to see that for themselves necessarily. So those kinds of techniques in terms of it, yeah. Right. To reflect back to them and to use a few data points over time may be very helpful in sending a message of a greater, you know, a a larger pattern that's emerging. And you brought up a good point about the roommate. You know, I hadn't I hadn't thought of that. That um, you know, it isn't. It would be important to have um, you know exchange the information because. Um, you know, you, if you need to know if someone's going to school, if they're not going to school, if they're depressed and laying in bed. So, you know, that's great. And also, um, I just wanted to um, let parents know that there is an app that you can put on your um, kid's phone, and it reminds them to take their medication. Oh, and, that's great. Um, yeah, you set the app, and it, you know, at the, with the time they're supposed to take it, and then at the end of the day, they get a reminder, did you take so, um, you know, the, the kids get busy. So, you know, that's another um, thing to use. And the Skype is fantastic because, you know, sometimes you really need to see them uh, you know, to tell how they're doing. Um, but I want to move on to a different topic, which is um, you know, the, the shootings and the violence um, that are happening. And, you know, before the show we were talking and I was saying that, you know, to me I just don't understand why these kids are falling through the cracks. I mean, they have very similar um, profiles. Um, you know, and why are so many parents and t- teachers missing the signs? I mean, what should we be looking for? And, you know, how do you feel about the way that these shooters are being portrayed in the media? Well, this is arguably one of the most talked about uh, issues in our field. And I think that a lot of it's in a lot of different scenarios where youngsters ultimately engage in a behavior that's tragic. Uh, there, it's based on descriptions that we've read and heard about. There are earlier signs in terms of young people threatening to hurt or kill themselves, or talking of wanting to hurt or kill 
themselves, looking for ways to kill themselves by seeking access to firearms, available pills or other means, talking to others, be it roommates or other people about death, dying or suicide, when these actions are out of the ordinary for the person. And in general, I would say that should you witness, hear, or see your child or a student or anybody exhibiting any one or more of those uh, symptoms or any of the following, I would strongly suggest seeking help as soon as possible by contacting a mental health professional, by calling the college's emergency number, or another great resource is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is 1-800-273-TALK. Yeah, and they've been the, on our show. They're fantastic, yeah. They are fantastic. And, and, and so the specific signs and symptoms that you talked about often can include hopelessness, rage or uncontrolled anger, acting reckless or engaging in risky activities seemingly without thinking, feeling trapped like there's no way out, increased alcohol or drug use, withdrawing from friends, family, and society, and significant anxiety, agitation, inability to sleep or sleeping all the time, as well as dramatic mood changes and then expressing no reason for living. But, you know, usually when you hear of of these... um you know these teens, and we this this pertains to high school just as well as college. Uh, when you hear of these um, kids that have you know done these horrendous shootings, you they've almost all been bullied. They're almost all loners. I mean, I, I can't remember hearing of anyone that was you know uh, you know on, on the football team and was you know popular or you know you just really don't hear that. So you know you have to wonder. Are parents not seeing this or are parents seeing this, but they they feel that they would be betraying their child to, you know, raise red flags about this? I mean, let's look at the case of the Aurora shooting. I mean, the signs were there. The alarm rang, you know, and how how are these kids falling through the cracks? I mean, you know, I guess one of the problems is the privacy acts. A lot of the psychiatrists, you have your hands tied. Right. Well, well, and there are specific specific nuanced aspects to to these these you know issues on a case by case basis because the balancing right. of doctor patient confidentiality against public safety is really a difficult matter there is though a solid legal consensus that therapists do have a duty to break confidentiality to protect possible victims when they believe a patient is likely to do harm and that's called the duty to warn that care providers duty to warn was actually articulated in the 70s in a series of court cases involving the murder of a young woman uh, named Tatiana Tarasov. And so this is actually, there is a solid legal consensus in terms of uh, therapists' duty to break this confidentiality in the setting of clear and present danger to a third party. Um, So if, if a patient is clearly dangerous, it's reasonable to expect his therapist to alert possible victims and the appropriate authorities and even to recommend that the patient be hospitalized. Um, obviously, therapists or counselors um, aren't expected to prevent every single crime their patients might commit, but they do have a duty to balance the need to protect patient confidentiality against the duty to protect potential victims, and sometimes the latter becomes the priority. Of course, yeah. I mean, yep. you know, it's, I, I agree. I mean, it's it's a balancing act because you want these teens and young adults to go and ask for help, Right. Um, but if they feel that you know that they're what they're going to say isn't going to be privileged, 
maybe they won't get the help that they need. So it's really very hard all around. And what about parents? Do they have a duty to warn or not really? Could a parent be held responsible um, not you know, a, if not, they knew that the their child? Sort of, not in right. the same, I think, you know, legal way, but certainly just in terms of a um, public health standpoint, it would be obviously um, something that would be important. And I think in terms of what you had mentioned, um, the the legal or ethical requirements to breach confidentiality, if there is an identifiable victim and imminent risk, um, the difficulty in terms of, as you say, making that determination is not easy because therapists also hear all kinds of fantasies and threats. And to break confidentiality, a care provider must be reasonably certain that a patient is dangerous or that potential victims can be identified and that the patient is likely to act. So whether or not a patient has had a history of violent acts in the past is often an important factor in deciding how seriously to take a threat of that nature. So all of these things speak to the importance of a good working relationship with a therapist between a patient and therapist or a patient and psychiatrist, um, which all kind of goes back to our initial point, which is setting these relationships up early so that your adolescent and your college kid can have somebody in their corner to help them through this process and it's not a complete stranger in the middle of crisis. Right. And it's so hard because, you know, you see these kids and you just look at them and, you know, it's so horrific, um, you know, and they're they're vilified. And, you know, then you, you look at the other side and you say, you know, they, they were so ill. Um, so it's 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 just it's heart wrenching. But you know, for a parent that has a, a a child like this, who you know is capable of doing something like this, how can a parent approach you know such such a fragile kid um, it, that they feel is really struggling or that has this capability? You know, how could they get them to professional help if they don't want it? Absolutely. Well, it's it's really really challenging, and I would say that parents need can and should access all the supports that they can to help their their loved one in need. So getting help from individuals or agencies specializing in crisis intervention and suicide prevention, um, you know, taking action uh, even if your adolescent is not in agreement with you, so removing means like guns or stockpiled pills, Offering hope that alternatives are available, but not offering glib reassurance because that only proves you don't understand from the adolescent's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, parents can, you know, be advised not to act shocked. That will put distance between you. Um, but don't also be sworn to secrecy. Seek support. Um, speak with them. You know, speak with your youngster openly and without judgment and tell them that you are going to take action because you love them and because you want to support them in the way that you know how to. And in terms of building up a network to support the parent in this situation, I would strongly encourage them to speak with their adolescent psychiatrist, their therapist, and call the counseling and psychological services at the university and really just seek help, seek support, because there are multiple resources out there to help families with these kinds of situations. Just a few, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, the American Psychiatric Association, the American Psychological Association, the JED Foundation, which is dedicated to college mental Mm -hmm. health specifically and all these issues, Um, and obviously, as I mentioned, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. 
And, you know, what tools, because you work with a lot of adolescents, um, you know, what tools do you find are working for these these college kids that are very stressed out? And I know that it's probably very individual, but, you know, what do you find is their, their most pressing concerns and what's helping them cope? It's a really good question. I think being prepared ahead of time and anticipating what will be challenging as best as you're able is really valuable because when, you know, the stuff hits the fan, it's it's hard to all of a sudden start something from start something new in terms of a new coping strategy. So for example, getting your child plugged in with services in terms of building up coping strategies for stress, building up patterns of behavior that are helpful to them, like setting a schedule and sticking to that schedule and sending themselves an app to remind them to take medication, things of that nature are all really helpful tools to put into place in the year prior to college because this will help them get ready and get into a routine that will carry itself through that freshman year and really get them over the hump. Um, Being in frequent touch with your adolescent and letting them know it's okay not to necessarily get back to for every text and phone call, but letting them know that you're there and keeping those lines of communication open, I think, are hugely helpful. And when you do drop your child off at college, visit counseling and psychological services, as I mentioned, maybe even setting up that appointment so that you can understand what resources are are there. You can actually see what the building looks like, maybe meet somebody, and then also model for your child that this is how one gets support and how one asks for help and that it's totally okay to do. And so they will, believe it or not, remember that visit when they are actually struggling and they may then feel much less nervous about walking through the door and, and booking that appointment. Right. You know, I think it's, it's so true that the way that the parent accepts um, their child's um, you know, disorder mm-hmm. is the way that mm-hmm. the, the child's going to accept it. So if you're comfortable with it and um, you're not ashamed of it and you're you know, openly seeking help, then the child, uh, as they grow up, will do the same thing. They'll self-advocate. So Absolutely. I want to thank you very much um, for joining us. And can you tell parents um, where they can find you? Do you have a website? Certainly. So I am the director of the adolescent program at Columbia Psychiatry, and they can give us a call, 212-326-8441. They can also Google Columbia Psychiatry, and uh, my name is Dr. Allison Baker. It's actually with two L's, just so you know, and uh, um, I would be happy to answer any other questions that anybody may have, and good luck to all of you parents out there sending your youngsters off to college or those of you who've already dropped off congratulations (laughs) well as one thank you very much (laughs) well thank you for joining us and we are going to be having um other um, doctors from columbia psychiatry are going to be um, doing some interviews with us so i'm going to be posting those next week Uh, As I end the show, yeah, we have some really great shows coming up. Um, As I end the show, each time, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become a strong, educated parent. Thank you for joining us. And go to our website, www.thecoffeeclatch.com. Have a great night, everyone. Good night, Marianne. Good night.